0: Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, that as we gather, it is always in the celebration that you have loved the world, that you have loved us and gave your son for us, and that we can walk in that fellowship and the life that you have granted us. So thank you for this and for our worship together this morning. Amen. We are continuing on in the book of Acts this morning. We're in Acts chapter 2, and I want to just start by reading it for you. Uh, You can follow in your own Bible, it'll be up on the uh, screens as well for you. An incredibly important passage that we come to this morning. It is, uh, it just capsulizes a whole lot and really out of this flows the rest of the book of Acts. So pay attention as we read and then we'll walk through it uh, together. So Acts 2, beginning at the first verse. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They've had too much wine or they're drunk already in the morning. God, this is your word We praise you for it. We thank you for your spirit who teaches us and guides us. And I pray that now as we open your word together, that we would have your spirit's understanding and that your application would come to us as uh, this word is declared this morning. Thank you for this. Amen. As I already said, a lot is happening in this chapter. Uh, Many have said that this is the birth of the church. While in some ways that that feels true, we recognize the church really started way back in Genesis. I mean, the church started after Adam and Eve's fall and God had a plan for a people to draw back to himself and a covenant to Abraham that he made. Really, there's the seeds of the church being planted. And so through all Old Testament, the church is being developed and is growing. But at this moment in time, on this day of Pentecost, As the spirit falls, there is something that happens that establishes the church in a brand new way. One writer has said that it's like the blossoming of that seed. A new blooming is taking place. A maturing flower is now bursting out. And in its beauty and its multiplicity of petals, that there is something brand new that's happening there. And I think that's a great picture for us to understand why the importance of this particular couple of paragraphs. It's really not a lot, but there is just so much that happens in this. Uh, As I get started this morning's sermon, I also want to just, I want to give a little credit. One to Tim Keller, two to John Stott. Tim Keller, I listened to a sermon by him, and uh, just a great outline that I'm going to borrow, and John Stott, uh, our community group leaders, are reading through that commentary together, and you're going to hear echoes of both of those men as I talk this morning. I just, I like to say that at the beginning, because sometimes if you go and listen to a sermon later on, you go, Tim Keller stole from Paul Havercroft. It's actually the other way around, just in case, all right? Just in case you had that thought ever. I know that comes all the time in your heads, but... Uh, just that's what happens. Or as you're reading the commentary, you're going to find some lines. And I'm not going to quote them exactly because it's, I don't have a big quote from them. All right? But I just, I like to put that out there so there's kind of an honesty in my preaching that happens because both those both those bless me as well as another other commentaries. But anyway, that's all besides the points. As we start this morning, I think we have to stop first of all and just talk about the significance of Pentecost. Pentecost... Happens seven weeks after Passover. It's called the Feast of Weeks. It's called uh, the Festival or the Feast of uh, the Festival of First Fruits. It's an Old Testament uh, established by the law and by Moses. The 50 days is where the term Pentecost comes from. Penta, you guys all know your old Greek and Hebrew and all that, not Hebrew, but you understand that. Penta is the word for 50. And so, 50 days after Passover, you have Pentecost taking place. And it's, it's often a really interesting study, if you want to do it sometime, to see how the major events in the life of Jesus line up with some of these major festivals of the Old Testament. Passover, we know, lines up with Easter. Passover, the giving of the lamb, right? The blood that was shed and put over the dope horse so that the Lord would pass over those. And then you have Jesus coming and the remembrance of that deliverance. And Jesus at Passover is given as the Lamb of God. And it's by his blood that God passes over in a sense or through him that atonement comes. And so this Passover, the Pentecost, that comes 50 days after this festival of first fruits, a time when they were celebrating the grain harvest, when they were celebrating the offering and recognizing what God had done for them, it also became, and by the time of Jesus in the first century, that Pentecost for the Jewish nation also became a great commemoration of the time of Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, when they came out of Egypt after the Passover, went through the wilderness and arrived at Mount Sinai when God came down on the mountain and from there was presenting to them the law. That was a great and terrible day. That when God came down at Mount Sinai, if you remember the picture back in Exodus 19, go back and read it. But Exodus 19, that God came on the mountain with smoke and fire and thunder and lightning and the quaking. And they had to set a barrier up around the bottom of the mountain so that people wouldn't get too close. And Moses was the one who was able to go up into the mountain. In fact, the people said, Moses, you go or we may all be consumed. This great and terrible day when God came down and gave them the law. It started with the Ten Commandments, his writing on those tablets of stone. But in those Ten Commandments, you also understand there is the the fuller law that was given to them. The feasting, the sacrificing, the civil law that they were to follow as a nation. God establishing with them this covenant his covenant with a people that he was identifying as his own. And Mount Sinai for the Jewish nation was that incredibly important moment in time. And this Feast of Pentecost became, along with the celebration of the harvest, also this recognition of Mount Sinai. And so really significant that it's at Pentecost that God comes down. God comes down again at Pentecost. He comes with a wind, with fire, and He comes upon a people. And in coming upon His people, He is establishing again the promise of a new covenant. And so you see at Pentecost, God doing this brand new thing in the church, and the era of the Spirit is going to be ushered in. That this new covenant, not in law, but in the grace that comes through Jesus Christ, in the grace that establishes him as the one who came as the redeemer of all nations for all people. Because as Peter says at the end of our passage today, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That there's this new movement of God in a fresh way. So that by grace and not through the law, but by the glorious sacrifice of what Jesus has done, that the Spirit is ushered in. Some would say that this is, in a sense, the final act of Jesus in his saving work before he returns again at the end of all things. That this is the moment when Jesus, after being born into humanity, after living our life with us and for us, but as a man, when he died for our sins, when he rose from the dead, he has ascended into heaven, and then he sends his promised Holy Spirit. It is the acts, as we're studying this book, the acts of Jesus and the continuation, the act of Jesus through his spirit now in the world. So in one way, this is a moment-in-time event. In one way, this moment at Pentecost, is a, it's like the birth of Jesus, It's like his crucifixion. It's like his burial and his resurrection. Those were moment-in-time events that are not to be repeated. So Pentecost, in in many ways, will not be repeated. It's the apostles being equipped. It's the inauguration of Jesus' promise to them. But it is also the inauguration of the new covenant, of the Spirit uniquely being present in all of God's people, to fill his church, to equip his church, to equip for the centuries that are to follow his people for the work of his gospel in this world. And in this moment, most significantly, God is no longer limiting himself to the temple, but now as he comes upon his people, he is building a new temple, the temple which is his people in this world. A people being gathered together and being built up together into the place where God dwells by His Spirit. An incredible changing, as you have it, in this moment that happens at Pentecost. So it's a historic moment, but every revival that has taken place since, every moving of God in the people of this world, in drawing men and women and children and families and nations to himself is a reenactment, is a, is a free fulfillment of what began in that moment at Pentecost. That every time there is a new life, that there is a new birth, that it's a reenactment of the Spirit coming and filling, it's an enactment of the baptism of the Spirit. When you by faith in Jesus Christ, accepted God's gift of eternal life, and you were saved, you were redeemed, and God's Spirit entered into you. It is Pentecost. It is that moment of God coming down and entering into the unique individuals of this world to fill them for His purposes, for the gospel and for His kingdom. It's why we're studying the book of Acts right now. We decided this year, because of what we wanted to accomplish in our vision, that the book of Acts was where we needed to go to. Dwayne spoke of this several weeks ago. We have in a vision statement for the next couple of years that really being spirit-filled and led is at the heart of it. Our vision is to encompass three areas, that we have a spirit-dependent salvation, that we have a spirit-led evangelism, and that we have a spirit-filled fellowship. And as we talked about how are we going to grow and develop in this area of our hearts and life as a church to become more acutely aware of how God works in his spirit within us, it was really unanimous that we needed to go to the book of Acts. We need to go to the book of Acts and work our way through this book this year with really the focus being how does the spirit work in his church? How does God's Holy Spirit take hold of His church to accomplish His purposes, both as a church but individually within our hearts and lives? How does the Spirit help us to become dependent upon Him in salvation, both as being witnesses but also in receiving the gospel to understand the place of the Spirit in our hearts and lives? How does the Spirit lead us in evangelism? How does the Spirit grant us eyes to see this world so that we can be proclaimers of the gospel? And how does the Spirit fill us for fellowship? How does the Spirit fill us together so we become the living, breathing body of Christ in which he dwells by his Spirit? So it's why we're in the book of Acts, if you haven't figured that out yet, just to kind of clear it up for you. It all pours out of that, and as we come to Acts 2, It's the beginning of all of that. And so as we focus our hearts for a few moments here this morning, this is where I'm going to borrow just a real simple outline from Tim Keller. Tim Keller says there's three things, at least three, that we can take note of in this passage. And the first is this, that we have an outside power. Second will be an inner wonder, and there's also a universal message. But we start with an outside power. Look how the passage starts. It says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and fills the whole house where they were sitting. Notice that Luke's language here isn't exactly clear. You know, Luke has researched this. That's what Luke was. He was a researcher. He went and he talked to all the people that were involved. I'm sure he talked to as many of these 120 that were gathered there that day. There was maybe more. We're assuming it's at least the 120 that are talked of in Acts 1, that they were together in this house in one place. But what he says is that there was a sound like a violent wind and what seemed to be tongues of fire. We need to understand this was an incredibly mysterious, an incredible moment that happened the life of the apostles and the church. And even those who were there weren't quite sure how to describe what was taking place. But what is very clear as Keller says it is an outside power. They heard, they saw, they felt, they were moved, they were given language to speak, all of this came from outside of themselves. All of this was God moving in a way that demonstrated the power of this source was outside of the individuals in that room. Why is that important to understand? I think it's important to understand because we have to recognize it's the reality of the Spirit of God. He is outside. God is outside of us, but in His Spirit, He deems to work within us that the power of God is resident and the reality of God, though the world may not acknowledge it and some may scoff and there are, you know, incredible numbers of people who say God does not exist, He's not there. For those in the church to understand that the outside power of God is the reality of His creation and the reality of the world that we dwell in. That God who is our creator, that God, who has made us and knows us, desires to walk in a fellowship with us. And to come into that relationship with us must create us as new beings. There needs to be the forgiveness of sin and the redemption of who we are. And God moves outside of who we are. I think it's really significant in a day when answers are really expected to come within You know, there's, in our culture, the movement really is towards you need to look within to find answers. You need to look within to kind of correct the problems and the issues of your life. You need to look within, and that's where you're going to find solutions. Whereas the gospel says you need to look without, for it's God that has the answers. It's God himself as our creator that is there to help us and to heal us. And that in his forgiveness is where we find real new life. It is the gospel proclamation that the problem is your sin, that the problem dwells within you, not out there. The problem is within and the answers is in God's power and his plan for you to find life and help. And his creative power and love for us is where the demonstration of his grace is going to be found for us. I mean, this is the story of the book of Acts. Jesus in this world continuing through his spirit at work. And in this moment at Pentecost, they saw and they felt and they heard this outside moving of God, making himself known and real to those who had given themselves to be following the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so in all of those manifestations that we read of, there's really given no sense of purpose to why they're all there other than to recognize God at work. It's where I already mentioned Mount Sinai. Why, was all, why did God put on a big display at Mount Sinai? Thunder and smoke and fire on top of the mountain. Because Israel needed a moment to recognize that God was without them. God was outside of them, and they needed to come, and they needed an approach to him. And so we have here in this day of Pentecost that as the Spirit falls upon them, it is the reminder that God is at work and is moving there among them. In our church, we, we need to cry and to watch for and to long for those moments when God moves and we know it's his hand upon us. And to celebrate that. And we need to cry out for his help. In just the last few weeks, you know, we've been crying for provision for this great project. And God has moved. You know, there weren't great manifestations, but if we don't appreciate, this is God working from outside of who we are. We see God moving in the lives and the hearts of people to draw people to salvation. That is God at work. It's outside God coming in, God moving among us. That's the repetition of God at work and outside power. But second, there is an inner wonder. The inner wonder continues in this frame, and it it really is that sense of that there seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. I, I tried to imagine this. Imagine being in this room and there's a huge sound of a wind. Was there actually wind that went along with it? Not sure. But there's this incredible overwhelming sound that happens and then as they're looking, there's a fire that appears in the room. Must have been devastating at first. I mean, when fire appears in a room, what's our first instinct? Run. Right, Andrew? (laughs) Right? You only send the firemen in. To deal with that but this fire came into the room and then it says it separated and somehow as it separated there appeared over the heads of people tongues of fire and it wasn't a consuming fire it was a fire that stayed and they were able to not have to endure it but be in wonder at what was taking place where else do you see that kind of fire in the pages of Scripture. Thanks, Daniel. (laughs) The burning bush. The burning bush is in fire, but it's not consumed. You actually see that fire in other places as well. With Abraham, when the covenant is being made with Abraham, and he's laid the halves of the sacrifice, and he falls into a deep sleep, what happens? There is a burning torch that moves between the sacrifice. At the time of Uh, Mount Sinai, the fire comes down upon the mountain. When the Israelites are traveling through the desert, there's the pillar of cloud by day. What is it at night? Pillar of fire. When the temple is being consecrated, what falls on the temple? The pillar of fire comes down. It falls on the tabernacle first in in the desert. Again, not consuming it, but falling upon it. The fire is the representation of God himself. God making himself known. And here at Pentecost, the fire appears. This glory of God fire associated with his presence showing up. And here at Pentecost, as they're gathered in this upper room, in a sense still mourning and wondering that Jesus has left, he's ascended and given them a mission, What's going to happen next? And here it comes. The fire falls, and they watch as it separates over each one of them. And it rests on them. That gathered assembly, the apostles who are there, the 12, the women, Mary, and Jesus' brothers, and then others that are there in the room. You know, this Mixture of the the powerful, the apostles recognized as leaders, but then these unnamed brothers and others that are in the room. Over the weak, over the strong, over the men, over the women, all those over authority, those who are serving, over that gathered crowd of individuals, God comes and the fire separates so that it falls over them all. The spirit is for every believer the spirit comes for every believer of Jesus and his presence becomes the mark of his salvation an inner wonder they were in that room they must have just been in awe of what was taking place to recognize that God would so come to them to fill them and allow them to understand his presence with them in this way. And as you trace God's presence coming upon people, there's always a common thread that takes place in it that helps us appreciate what part of the filling of the Spirit for us is. At the baptism of Jesus, Remember, as Jesus was baptized, and as he came up out of the water, it says that there was as if a dove came, and it was the Spirit of God came upon him, and a voice from heaven said, "This is my what, my son. And I am so pleased. I am well pleased in him." It's the Father in that moment, as the Spirit comes, saying, "I embrace him as my son." You see it in John 14 to 16 when Jesus is giving the promise of the Spirit to his disciples. He says, I'm going to give you another counselor. I have to leave and you're going to sorrow for a little while, but I'm going to give you another counselor. And he says this, the Spirit of truth is going to come. He's going to guide you into all truth and help you to know what to say when you need to say it. But more, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you, and on that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Again, the Spirit coming, why? So that they will know that they are part of God's family and embraced by him. Romans 8.15 says, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. And then listen, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are indeed God's children. The filling of the Spirit on that day and on every day that follows has as a, as a component of it God saying, you are mine. You are my children. I love you and I've brought you to myself. It's the Father making himself known to you, granting you his touch. I heard it described in this way. If you picture a father and a child walking along the road and as they're walking down the road they're talking and there's a nice connection there but then when they stop and the father reaches down and embraces his child and brings them up in a hug and they begin to talk the child is is no no in no greater means a child of the father they were still father and son father and daughter But in that moment, in that embrace, there's an experience, there's an understanding that we are together in that. Someone has described that the filling of the Spirit is the Father's embrace of you, to allow you to know that you are His child, to allow you to understand His love and His grace. And you are, you become, you become drawn in to that experience of God's touch in your life. And when you know that touch, when you understand his love, and when you have those moments, those, those high moments of in a worship or in a fellowship or in reading in scripture, those moments when we understand God's presence because we are in obedience to him, or in conviction and we have repented and he has forgiven us, or when we have trusted him, or when we see his provision, it's in those moments that we understand that embrace of God. And it's in those moments that the joy and the love of God for us comes to bear. It's also in those moments that we become joyfully fearless. In fact, we might become so joyfully fearless that it might look like we're drunk. That's what was happening on this day. Those 120 in the upper room got so joyfully fearless that what was going on, and some people mocked them and said, ah, they're all getting drunk. They couldn't comprehend what was taking place. It's interesting that being filled with the Spirit and drunkenness get linked. The Apostle Paul does it too, doesn't he? In Ephesians 5, don't get drunk with wine, but instead be filled by the Spirit. Keller has a good comment about that correlation. See, you get joyfully fearless when you get drunk. He says, when you get drunk on alcohol though, it's because you've become more stupid, right? Alcohol suppresses. Alcohol makes you not as aware of reality. It dulls your senses. But the spirit, the spirit gives us joy through intelligence. The Spirit assures us that the only person who really matters loves us infinitely more than we can imagine. That Jesus gave himself up for us. He died for us that we might know eternal forgiveness and hope. That we might have a place assured for us in heaven. And it's the Spirit who makes all of that the reality in our lives. He absolutely assures us that we are his child. And this intelligence gives us a confident joy, a buoyant hope. And when the Spirit came at Pentecost, this joyful fearlessness broke out, and they began to make declarations. And the Father gifted them to make that declaration in tongues, to make that declaration so that all the people would hear and understand it in their own language. And what is it that they proclaimed? You have to go down to verse 11. In verse 11, as the people describe it, they say, we heard them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, the mighty works of God. That's language that goes with the stories of God's mighty work in saving his people. You know, it's the story of the Passover, of God bringing his people out of Egypt, the wonders of his works there. It's the story of the crossing of the Red Sea, when Moses stood and said, see the salvation of the Lord. And the, par- the waters parted and they walked through on dry land. God saved them that day. These are the mighty works of God. And the people that day were hearing in their own tongue the mighty works. Works of God being declared. What were they declaring that day? What was the mightiest work of God that they knew that had taken place? Jesus, who died and was buried and rose again on the third day, and then they saw walking and they spent time with him on the earth, and they saw him ascend to the right hand of God, and they proclaimed the mighty works of God. The gospel became that which was their joyful obsession. And they became declarers of it. And this was the filling or the understanding of this inner wonder that was overtaking them. And as they had this outside power that came upon them, and they were filled with this inner wonder, it became a universal message as well. It's important to understand that Luke spends more time talking about the people who heard this message than he does talking about being filled with the Spirit and talking in tongues. Luke takes a lot of time to tell us who was there that day. I mean, he says, listen who was there to understand this message. Listen who the tongues were for. And while we don't have time today to kind of go into all all what tongues might be and the similarities to the tongues in 1 Corinthians 14, I imagine your community groups this week, you'll want to figure that out a little bit. But the tongues in Acts chapter 2 are definitely about communication. In Acts, and I, I believe in 1 Corinthians 14, the, the parallels are they're both about praising God and giving glory to God, and they're both about communication. But here, these tongues were definitely about a language being spoken. 1 Corinthians 14 seems to have a nuance that there is also a, a, an inner a personal working of tongues, but they also need to be interpreted in a corporate setting. So it is about communication. Tongues are about communication of the wonders and the glory of God. But here in Acts 2, it's definitely about communicating this message of God. And we learn these tongues are these other languages. And these people that God gathered, look, look back at, chapter, at uh, verse 5, where he begins to describe who all was there. Paul says, or Luke says in his writing, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. This is the universal message. Luke says everybody was there, somebody from every nation. Now, we understand that as he says that, He wasn't meaning probably every people group in the entire world, but the list that he now gives us, if you put it out on a map, he basically says, in the known world to Luke, to where the Jews had been dispersed in all of the world, there was someone there from all those places, even up to the highest place of Rome. I won't read the list to you again. But as you go through that list, all the nations are represented. And Luke wants us to understand that. He says, you need to know that this gospel is for all the world. That this gospel, that the story of Jesus Christ is not just for one people. It's not just for one time. The story of Jesus goes into all the world. As it has since that day. That the gospel, that Christianity has traveled across the world, that the scriptures have been interpreted into all kinds of different language. And the disciples on this day are joyfully obsessed with the gospel to share how God is starting a new chapter of what's going on. And God breaks through all of the language barriers. It's not hard to think of the Tower of Babel during this story. So many commentators take you back there, and it's just so easy to understand. What happened at the Tower of Babel? Do you remember back in Genesis that the nations were gathering together, and they began to build a tower to reach to heaven in their pride and in their arrogance that they were setting themselves up against God? They were those, as Romans describes, That although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God or gave thanks to Him. Rather, they were setting themselves up. And God in judgment, what? Confused their language. Confused so they could no longer understand each other. And they had to spread out around the world. So this great confusion takes place. What's happening here? God is breaking that barrier down. He's reversing His judgment of Babel and says, I have come, and on this day, all peoples will understand. On this day, the message is going to every people, and we are gathering them from everywhere. Here, God comes down. God enters in and says, there is a brand new story. There is good news to be shared. And the apostles and the disciples and the followers of Jesus take that up, so much so that the people who hear it are bewildered and they're amazed and they're listening to this story and they finally say, What does all this mean? And Peter stands up among them and begins to preach. Dwayne's going to take kind of most of this next week, but just listen to his introduction. He says, what does this mean? And Peter takes them back and he stands up with the 11 and he raises his voice and addresses the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And do you remember Dwayne saying what, when they were in the upper room, what were they probably doing? They were sharing stories. They were going back to the Old Testament and going, look, look, look what Jesus fulfilled. Look at the prophecies that were fulfilled. And Peter stands up, and here he says, this is what Joel was talking about. And in this, I'm just going to read it. He says, in the last day, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, Peter is short on details. (laughs) Peter doesn't try to go through this verse by verse, as Dwayne would probably want to do. He just goes, here's the prophecy, and it's fulfilled this day. That's the big picture message He says, what was given in the old is now being fulfilled through the person of Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ, the Spirit has been poured out upon us, on your sons, on your daughters, on young men, on the old men, on the servants, on the men, on the women, and wonders and signs are to come. Why? So that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord... And Peter, in the rest of his sermon, is going to identify that Lord as Jesus of Nazareth, who lived and died, was buried, and rose again from the dead. Your Savior He's going to say this is what's happening today. That He has come so that all of us can be brought back into this living relationship with the God of all glory. And as you come into this relationship, that the Spirit will be with you. And the Spirit will fill your heart for purpose, for His purpose. And He will gift you. And He will draw you into fellowship. Andrew, you and the team can come up again. So as we see the coming of the Spirit here in Pentecost, we see an outside power, we see an inward wonder, and we hear this universal message. And this has not changed. And oh, church, may this be our desire. May this be our cry for ourselves and for our church together that we would see the demonstration of God's power among us, that we would be filled with the inner wonder of His presence, of His love and His grace in our hearts and our lives. That we might be joyfully fearless to declare the gospel, the hope of the world. We're going to celebrate communion together as we sing our next song. If on your way in you didn't pick up a cup and the bread, as we start to sing, feel free to go out and do that. As we celebrate the Lord's table this morning. I want us to be reminded that we celebrate the life and the sacrifice of Jesus. It's a time for believers to confess together that we are one in him, that we are his body together. As we do that, I would remind you that the other confession that Jesus calls us to make is the testimony of baptism. Just this week, we started to make plans for a baptismal service coming up in November being prompted by some in the Karen church and they're going to have that in one of our morning services and so if you have been thinking about baptism going to encourage you that this would be a great moment for you as if you are confessing that Jesus is your savior that you would make that public by being baptized in obedience to his command and as we take this communion this morning it's a time to recognize our fellowship as, our, as a body To be aware that it is the Spirit's work in us who unites us together. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 said, I receive from the Lord what I am also passing to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took the bread. And when he had given thanks he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do it in remembrance of me. And then he said in the same way after supper he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim his death together, individually, but as a church family, to fearlessly proclaim that our Savior will come again because he died and his promises have always come true. As we sing this next song, in your own time, you can take the cover off the bread and eat that bread, and then as you want to continue a meditation to take the cup and drink it. Uh, the band's just going to lead us in a song. Feel free to sing along with that when you're finished, but just this is our time of reflection together. So as we sing, I'm going to pray for us. We'll sing. You take the communion as you'd like to. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the one who unites our hearts together that you by your spirit dwell within us and call us your own and i pray in these next few moments god that in a in a way that's only spirit led and filled that you would allow us to know your presence here father would you touch our hearts afresh as we take this bread the body of jesus reminding us of what it is to be your children through what he has done for us as we take this cup would you remind us that it is by his blood that we are forgiven and we walk in eternal relationship with you and oh spirit would you so move our hearts to be flooded again with your love and your grace we ask this in christ's name amen